Welcome to the Innovation Nation on Career Buzz Canada's unique radio conversation that empowers lives, enriches careers, and energizes organizations. It's a working man I am, and I've been down underground. I swear to God if I ever see the sun Or for any length of time I can hold it in my mind I never again will go down underground At the age of 16 years Quarreled with his peers Who vowed there'd never be another one In the dark recess of the mines Where you age before your time And the cold dust lies heavy on your lungs It's the great Dubliners playing Rita McNeil. That's the honour they've shown the great Rita McNeil from the east coast of Canada. Welcome to Innovation Nation on Career Buzz. I'm Stephen Armstrong and I'm pleased to be your host today on Innovation Nation on Career Buzz. Innovation Nation explores the intersection of the real world business practice and people's career development. We explore how individuals turn their personal passion for innovation into tangible commercial success. Thank you for tuning in this morning. Today on your show, we focus on lifelong learning and why it is so important for individuals as well to an economy and a nation. When most people think of learning, they think of formal education, sitting in rows of chairs, reading from heavy textbooks. But lifelong learning goes far beyond what you learn in school, college or university. Lifelong learning is a form of self-initiated education that is focused on personal development. Now, while there's no standard definition of lifelong learning, it is generally being taken to refer to the learning that occurs outside of a formal educational institution, such as a school, university, or for corporate training. But what does life learning, lifelong learning really include, and how can it benefit you? Today, our guest is Professor Brian Carney, and who really is completely and absolutely qualified to talk about this subject. Professor Brian Carney is a professor of civil engineering at the University of Toronto, and he's actually in phased retirement after being vice dean of multidisciplinary studies or multidisciplinary program from 2009 to 2022. His research interests reside in the design, analysis, operation, and optimization of various water resources and energy systems. He specializes in the design and analysis of water distribution systems with interest in infrastructure renewal, transient, and water hammer analysis and system optimization. Professor Carney also studies the implications of climate change to systems design and performance, and particularly energy use. He's a professional engineer in Ontario, and he holds a Bachelor of Applied Science, a Master of Engineering, and a PhD in Civil Engineering 
from the University of British Columbia. Brian, welcome. Thank you, Stephen. It's wonderful to be here. Okay, so you're in phased retirement. What, in a nutshell, what is that? <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit of a funny thing to get your head around, but basically it allows you to extend your retirement over a little bit longer period of time, but not work full time. So essentially it means that over a three year period of time, I work for half time and allows you to sort of transition from full time work into uh, the, the next stage of your life and do it so that you can clean up some of the loose ends that you uh, uh, hung around from the previous part of your career. And I'm sure the next phase of your life will be lifelong learning. <laughs> yes, continuous uh, learning. Okay, well, tell us in, in a nutshell, why does it, why, what is it and why does it matter? Well, I think one of the things that they recognize, and it's a pretty special thing in itself, is that humans are the only organism that essentially uses intelligence and understanding and skills that come from that understanding to survive, that our survival doesn't depend on being one of the fiercest or one of the fastest or one of the strongest or uh, organism that can fly or that can reproduce very quickly. But we do have this ability to transform our environments through our understanding and through uh, the understanding of consequences. And that really is the world that lifelong learning puts you in touch with. It's that business of acquiring skills and understanding processes, specifically so that you can achieve human goals. From a, from a lifelong point of view, I have to tell you, when I first came to Canada, my first major job was at Bombard, well, the Havland Aircraft at the time. And it was a research job. It was like for a couple of years. And it was to do with composite materials for the leading edge. And I had to spend literally 50% of my time in the library because composites, when I first came here, were only in the early stages. And I'd only about a year's experience in the UK with them. And one of the, the, the boss of my boss actually mocked, he, he didn't mock me directly, but he mocked me indirectly by saying, and, and he meant this, he said, you know, when I left school, I never had to open a book again. Now, this is what he, this was a, a quite a, he wasn't a professional engineer, actually. He was actually, I think, a tool and die maker. But he, I would never forget it. I had to, because it was leading edge stuff, I had to go do research, literally academic papers that, that other people. And he said, and he was, he thought that that was bizarre. What do you think of that? Well, I, I think one of the things that this is so obvious to almost anyone these days is the world is changing. And there's just no way that we in an educational program can instill all the skills you might encounter or might need. And so the, you know, I mean, I, I suspect he continued to learn and you can learn, learn outside of books, but to exclude books from the portfolio of things that you learn from just seems to handicap yourself. It's it's like trying to, you know, to run a race with, um, you know, with bare feet and tough terrain or something. It's, it's, it's to create an obstacle that's not needed. I think what it illustrated to me at the time, it was the complete opposite of what we would now call lifelong learning. I mean, it was the complete opposite in terms of what motivated me. And I and when you mentioned you know what your definition was, I just illustrated that as the opposite of what you're calling for. Tell me to you what comes to mind. Like what's the what's the first things that come to mind with you 
when you think of lifelong learning? Well, I think it's that ability to adapt to changing circumstances. It's that ability to use our intelligence and our creativity to be able to um, reposition ourselves in a way that is effective. If you think about your life trajectory, you go from you know being a, a newborn, pretty helpless, to be able to walk, or you know, initially perhaps to crawl, and then to speak, and then to engage the world, and and then you know progressively learn skills. And why would that process end at some arbitrary period of time? The world keeps changing our opportunities within the world keep changing, our experience keeps changing. And lifelong learning is just a way of keeping, keeping towards the effective and constructive way. I think actually in today's society, it's a necessary skill for survival. It's no longer an option. It's not like you get a job and you learn the job and then you're okay for 40 years or 50 years. I think what you're saying is that lifelong learning is now an essential skill and way of thinking for survival. Would Does that make sense? I totally agree with you. I think it's exactly a necessary condition these days. There's just almost no job that won't be redefined. There's almost no understanding that won't be advanced. And so you need to keep current. You need to keep engaged. And I think the other aspect of that scene is it can be fun. It can be an adventure. It can be something that one takes pleasure and delight in. Uh, lifelong learning is something that says, I, I, I can do this now. I couldn't do that before. And those are not necessarily intellectual skills like you know, learning a new language or you know, learning some new mathematical or computer technique, but it might include you know a, a skill that you take pleasure in, like uh, you know, like woodcrafts or uh, you know, cooking or you know, sewing or whatever else interests you. Uh, there's just a huge range of things that as humans we can learn to do. Learning to create a vegetable garden. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you've had a very long career. You you chose an academic path out of high school. I well, that's what it's that's what it appears like. You know, your bachelor's, master's, PhD, and then you know, a, a career as a professor of civil engineering, and then as a vice dean and so on. Just just give us a sense of that his that journey and and when. It looks like lifelong learning was inherent in you or did like when did it happen? When when did you embrace it as a as a way of life? Well, again, I don't want to get too much into personal history because that might be really boring. But I was really sick when I was young. I, I missed all kinds of school when I was in early grades and I had to catch up. And I caught up by really at that point, it wasn't entirely self-directed. My, you know, my father in particular took me aside and said, look, you've got you've missed a lot of school. It's time you caught up on these things. And he worked with me specifically with mathematics. And I started to realize that I could do it and I could catch up to the class. And, uh, you know, it became even more of a prominent thing when my family, when I was uh, 17 in my final year of high school, we moved to East Africa. And I, I moved there specifically to live in Dar es Salaam, the uh, chief city of Tanzania. And we lived on the coast. I wanted to be there because I love the ocean. I love beachcombing. I love swimming. I love diving. I love shell collecting. I love all the aspects of what you do along the coast. And the only school was inland. And so I signed up to do correspondence courses. 
But I talked to numerous parents and numerous other friends who said, like, it's hopeless. You'll never be able to achieve anything through correspondence courses. I sort of took that on as a challenge. I was a bit of a contrarian. So I said, okay, let's see what we can do here. And it was hard. I had to learn new skills. But, you know, the lesson plans were well enough developed that if you read them and sometimes reread them and pondered them, you started to see the picture. And it was extremely rewarding to to take something that was incomprehensible and turn into something that not only you could understand, but you could explain to others. And I think that to a certain extent, I ended up mentoring the people and teaching the people that said that I couldn't do this. And you know, that combination was, well, it was a bit, um, you know, intoxicating. Uh, it, it gives you a, a, that sense that, you know, you could help others and you could help yourself. And that you really realize that a huge amount of learning is really when you sit down and wrestle with the material, asking, well, how does this relate to my life? How would, would be an example of this? What might contradict this? Uh, how might I build upon this? Where might this be useful? Where it might go wrong? And that um, combination of things was just a wonderful experience for me. I just an uh, eye-opening experience to be able to sit down with uh, a, a book or with material that was initially incomprehensible, like your composites, and say, I can I can do this. I can build up systematically a picture of how these things work and what might be valuable and useful in this. For many years, were you in, like, what years were you in Tanzania? You were born and raised in Canada or Ontario? I was born and raised in Canada. I moved to Tanzania in uh, after I finished grade 11. I actually moved a little bit before the end of the school year. So I had a few things to finish for myself. And I was there for a year. My folks were there for longer and they became quite enamored with the, the life uh, and with the experience in Africa. So they lived in Nigeria after that. But I was there for one year and came back to, to study. Again, with the only thought in my mind at that point was oceanography. Uh, and I came back to um, to Vancouver and started at UBC with the idea of a career in oceanography. But you, but I don't see oceanography in your background. I see environmental engineering. Well, it's funny how things happen. Sometimes you get an experience, and the experience doesn't click until a long time afterwards. And that's part of the the secret of lifelong learning is that patient reworking of experiences and understanding. But I recognize that in East Africa, that a huge number of people were entirely preoccupied with obtaining drinkable water. Yeah. It was just a huge need. And when yeah. I started to think about that, I thought, hey, maybe I should do something a little bit more practical than, than pure the study of the ocean. And I, I got interested in irrigation and how things grow and how we supply water to people. And that ultimately led to uh, you know, experiences with, with studying irrigation systems with the BC Ministry of Agriculture and really falling in love with water in all of its aspects and how we motivate water using energy. And so that combination sort of said, okay, what about engineering? I didn't know much about it then. And I, I adopted engineering and really discovered that it was a fascinating and demanding area. And, and perhaps you know, I'll just extend that one more, more, more second, but you know, what, what's so cool about being an engineer is that engineers, if they're good, need to take human desires seriously, but you need to negotiate with what nature is willing to do. You know, so you get simple adages that water doesn't run uphill, but in fact, we create pumps 
that specifically induce water to run uphill. And we do it to achieve human goals, but you're always getting water to do what the water will do naturally. And, and you, you sort of trick it in a sense to flow uphill by you know, inducing it to respond to influences. And that is to me what is the, the most fun thing about engineering is a kind of a negotiation between natural constraints and between human desires. I'm Stephen Armstrong. You're listening to the Innovation Nation on Career Buzz here on CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto and worldwide online at CIUT.FM. And our topic today, lifelong learning and why it's so important. Brian, what you said there was absolutely a golden nugget. I was about to ask you what 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 triggered your interest in water? And you answered it without me asking, which was your experience in Tanzania. Your one-year experience in Tanzania pretty much shaped your future life, especially around water. I mean, it's actually incredible. It was a hugely influential experience. And again, there's one other link for lifelong learning that's worth mentioning that you know, I was a, a student in Canada, and you know, Canadians often view education as a kind of a, you know, unpleasant duty, something that you're, you're supposed to do. And when I was starting to think about going back to Canada, my East African friends, and they were both Africans and from India and some other uh, people from other parts of the world, and they would ask me what I would do when I would go back to Canada. I'd say, well, I'd probably go to university. And a, a number of uh, reactions where their jaw would drop and they say, you get to go to university? You're able to do that? And I had never think, thought or never taken a university education or the ability to learn in that sense as a privilege, as something that you get to do, not something that you have to do. And it, it transformed my attitude towards education. And you know, when you get into a, you know, a final exam in a complex subject, Rather than saying, oh, this is terrible. You say, yeah, I get to study this. I get to test myself against this material. And it's transformative in terms of an attitude towards things to have that opportunity rather than that requirement. So you don't, you, you, another learning when you were very young was you don't, you, you learn not to take things for granted, both getting a professional education and also Water. You're, you you realize that there could be wars fought over water. I mean, we live on the Great Lakes, <laughs> around the Great Lakes here in North America, and take fresh water for granted. But you being in Africa, realize how rare it is and how you know battles can be fought just to just to control water resources. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's I, you know, I think learning is an essential for survival for humans in general, but uh, so is water. We don't live for long without water. We can't grow food without water. We can't cleanse ourselves. We can't produce things. We can't transport things in many cases without water. So water is just one of those core realities that governs a huge amount of what takes place and I'm, of course i'm realizing i'm realizing a future show will be with you will be uh water its importance <laughs> and anyway getting back to our topic today talk about the role of general intelligence what we think of as iq and lifelong learning again i think even iq is probably too narrow a framing for intelligence but 
you know, as I've gone through life and I'm, you know, freely admit I'm 66 years old, Stephen. So, you know, the phase retirement is a reality, but I've met people in all kinds of walks of life with all kinds of special interests. And what just amazes me is how many different forms intelligence can take. You know, the intelligence that can, you know, can hit three pointers in basketball, the intelligence that can hit home runs in baseball, the intelligence that can create ways of fighting fires in, in, in dire circumstances or ways of um, combating human disease is in, in the medical profession. You know, we can learn to drive cars and drive planes. We can make great art. We can make phenomenal music. You're going to play one of my favorites uh, in a few minutes. Our, our, our skill set is remarkable. Our skill set includes interpersonal things of, you know, being able to encourage and nudge children to uh, uh, take on certain challenges and to do certain things and to develop certain skills. It's just such a, a broad range of capacities and capabilities that we have that yeah, they just should be celebrated in all their forms. You know, the ability of people to, you know, to make sculptures or to, you know, act in a play or to be able to write a fantasy novel, you know, create a work of fiction. Those are remarkable abilities. I think one of the things that came out there, you may not have said it, but it sounds like it is is actually people who engage in lifelong learning actually love it. They it inspires them and it feeds their soul. And if if a person, if a young person can find a topic or an interest or a career or a hobby that they actually love, and then it becomes a pleasure and and absolutely, yeah. And, and it's, oh, that's right, and, and it's, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Just expand on that. No, I did. You're, you're saying exactly the right things. And you know, the adage that just came to mind as you were speaking is, you know, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. And, and I think that adage is remarkably true. If you get people to talk about things that they love, they do it. After. Yeah. Um, you're, yeah. You, you, for some reason, your your voice disappeared there, but don't worry. It, it's okay. It's it's not it's not a showstopper. Tell talk to me about emotional intelligence. Well, emotional intelligence, of course, has got all those issues of self awareness and self regulation. You know, that you need to be aware of who you are, how you respond to certain challenges or environmental stresses. Uh, you need to be able to motivate yourself. And I think a huge amount of the success of really, um, you know, critically helpful lifelong learners is that ability to motivate themselves to to, to find the next page to turn over. To you know, I'm going to get through ten pages before I leave my desk. I'm going to understand this before I do something else. That that self awareness, that self regulation. You know, it often has to do with relationships as well, the ability to uh, deal with setbacks, the ability to be patient. Uh, those emotional skills are, are really where our motivation comes from. Intellectual understanding is pretty dry uh, in the long term, but the emotional connections that motivate it is, is that desire to make a difference to those that you care for and that you love, to uh, acquire skills in an area that really matters to you. Talk about that concept that you, you mentioned there about setbacks. Um, nobody goes through life without setbacks. I mean, they come in all shapes and sizes and forms. I mean, there's no possible way to get through a life without setbacks. Talk about the importance of 
emotional intelligence, dealing with setbacks, and maybe give an example or two that you experienced or you've observed? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I think that th those emotional setbacks come very rapidly and, as you say, very consistently in life. You know, you can count on people, sometimes criticism, sometimes impatience, sometimes. And I think in those situations, the life, the ability to emotionally regulate yourself is actually crucial. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, that ability to sort of say, you know, that's your problem, not my problem. Uh, you know, that you've responded in that particular way that, okay, I probably had an off day. All of us have off days sometimes. You know, you know the ability to pick yourself up and say, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to try again. I'm going to uh, myself again. It takes real guts and courage. And I think we're talking about, you know, not intellectual understanding again, but really that aspect of a mature character, a mature character that can can cope with uh, opinions. And I think one of the most crucial skills sometimes is to develop that, cultivate that uh, awareness of living for an audience of one. Again, I'll tell you a personal experience with that. I was, you know, initially fairly ambitious as a teacher. I thought I could do things. I thought I could achieve a certain degree of recognition. But I realized well into my career that I wasn't, I was playing to the crowd too much. I was giving the course I thought would make me popular. And I stopped and said, I'm going to give now the course that I think you really need. I'm going to you know, teach to my standards of what I think is crucial and most critically important. And when I did that, I enjoyed myself more. And I think that was transmitted to students. And they enjoyed it more because they didn't know what they wanted always. Uh, you know, that what was initially interesting doesn't always satisfy. And so it was that reposition myself. And ironically, then you start achieving recognition, recognition that you needed as much, but, but still is a kind of a you know, reassurance that you're on the right path. I think there, there's been a number of times I've just had great discouragement and you pick yourself up and say, well, I can do this. I think what you said there, you, did, you didn't actually say reinvent yourself, but it was or reposition. You said reposition. So mm -hmm. another golden nugget of lifelong learning is assessing what you're doing every so often, being mindful and thoughtful and and. And then adapting, you know, if you're getting negative feedback, adapt to that and reposition and reframe it. I mean, that 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 sounds like a golden nugget as well in terms of like I think you summarized it really well, Stephen. That's extremely good. Listen, we're going to take a break now and we're going to play Brian's uh, favorite song. It's Al Stewart, Year of the Cat, the Scottish songs, the songwriter. And uh, my name is Stephen Armstrong, and you're listening to Innovation Nation on Career Bus here on CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto and worldwide online at CIUT. Take a break. Back with Brian Carney, Professor Brian Carney, the topic lifelong learning, why it's so important. So now we're going to listen to The Year of the Cat with Scottish artist Al Stewart.
We're back at the Innovation Nation on Career Buzz, and I'm your host, Stephen Armstrong. Before continuing to the second half of our interview, I wanted uh, listeners to know about the Innovation Nation archive. Go to amgimanagement.com and select radio show. You'll hear there's over 120 previous shows on many topics, uh, artificial intelligence, strategic thinking, leadership and innovation, creative destruction, entrepreneurship, engineers and doctors without borders, advanced manufacturing, early childhood education, uh, and many, many other subjects and of people's careers and lives and so on and businesses. We're back with Brian, Professor Brian Carney. Our topic is lifelong learning and why it's important. So welcome back, Brian. Thank you. Good to be back again. Brian, um, let's talk about, you know, you set the stage in the first half. Let's talk about the barriers to lifelong learning. What what gets in the way of it and how do we address that? So go yeah, ahead. Very good questions. I think the barriers are very real when you consider it. I think one of the most significant barriers is the early experience that we have with an area, you know, sometimes we'll, you know, we'll try something for the first time and we'll try it amongst other people who have practiced it a lot. You know, it might be throwing a ball, it might be skating, it might be, you know, some other physical or intellectual activity. And they've had a chance to practice and own your skills and they compare you to that and they make fun of you or they laugh or they uh, dismiss your, your skills and ability. And the basis of one or two data points, you write yourself off and say, I'm not that kind of person or I can't do that kind of thing. And really, you've given your sense, yourself no fair chance to try. Uh, you know, you know, particular story that was very real to, to me is my our, uh, my son was was quite big for his age and he was well spoken. And he was with a bunch of other guys at one point and they invited him to join them. Now, it turned out that they were he was in grade seven, I believe, and they were in grade 10 and they went to a go kart location. And it was the first time he had ever done go karts. They had done it for years. And, you know, they thought he was not very good, that it was a little bit uncoordinated. And really, it was a completely unfair comparison. Um, they had had lots of experience. He had almost none. And I think many times we sort of set an internal standard for ourselves and say, okay, we're not that kind of person. You know, we go to a dance floor, or we, floor, or we try singing, or we try swimming, or we try uh, public speaking, whatever those things are, and haven't given our, ourselves a fair chance to develop those skills. So I think those early negative experiences play a huge role in the way we mentally determine what we're good at and what we're not good at, and therefore what we're prepared to practice. And practice is the key. It's a matter of being patient with yourself. Our five-year-old granddaughter is uh, loves to communicate, but she makes lots of speech faults yet. And yet I kick myself when I can repeat in a foreign language, somebody has said perfectly after one hearing. And you sort of have to kick yourself and say, give yourself a break. It will take a bit of time to master this. And you work at it and you get better and uh, those things improve. And that will happen in every category of our life. By pure coincidence, I actually looked up the life a couple of days ago of Rita McNeil, who I use as the theme music here today. It happens to be the Dublin version, Dublin, the Dubliners version of Rita McNeil. Now she had a terrible, well, not a terrible, but a, a, a challenging childhood, like a really seriously challenged childhood. 
She was born with, I think it was called her lip, we would call it in Ireland, but but she over and she was told, oh, you'll never amount to this and you'll not amount to much. Well, of course, as you know, she's probably one of the greatest singers ever to come out of Canada. And she went through all this and she, she she's a classic example of what you just described or someone that says, you can't tell me what I can do and can't do. I'll decide. And she became a, one of the greatest singers Canada ever produced. So it's it, it aligns with what you just said. Wonderful story. And if I can add one other aspect, then it's related to the first, but I think sometimes there's a basic insecurity that if we feel we don't really try something, then we, we, we sort of console ourselves that, okay, yeah, we weren't very good, but we didn't really try. And you don't really give yourself a chance to develop something. You, you sort of say, well, I, I, it really is a failure if I tried, but not realizing that, you know, failure leads to less severe failures, which leads to a modest success, which leads to more success, which leads to a feedback loop that allows us to develop skills, whether they're you know, physical skills or emotional skills or, or intellectual skills. And I think those insecurities stop us from giving it our best shot. Now, we'll talk about the whole concept of mind management, but another way I'm going to put it is, can you learn to learn? Like, can you learn to manage your your uh, your your thinking about change and about um, barriers and so on? So, can you learn to learn be, by being open minded? Exactly. <laughs> Expand. <laughs> well, I wasn't sure if you were going to continue, but you know the the ability to learn to learn to be able to figure out what works for you what your cognitive skill sets you require. There's a variety of strategies that people use to learn and they're different for different people. You know, some people are really good at oral learning and some people are visual learning and some people are good at learning because they draw pictures. Uh, whatever your skill set is, you can both maximize your ability to develop in that area, but you can also stretch yourself a bit and get to be better at another skill rather than just being content that you learn one way. You you try to, I think the technical term these days is scaffold where you, you build off what you're good at and get better at other things. And that ability to learn what is effective, what works well for you. Um, there is a famous um, uh, psychologist who has taught a lot in the area of statistics, and he used to get uh, his students to sing uh, various um, theorems and, and, and equations so that they would remember them. <laughs> and singing funny. is a great way of remembering things. So is drawing cartoons, so is you know, pictures, whatever works for you, explore, discover, find out what is best at lodging things into a memory that you want to keep. So you could sing mathematical formulas when you do your engineering degree and then and hum them to yourself in the exams? Well, that's exactly what Kahneman was doing. I, as you, anybody listening to this knows, voice is not one of my strong points. So uh, that, that wasn't the forte for me. But, you know, for me, sometimes it was, uh, I have a good auditory memory. So I could remember hearing things. If I listened to a book at the same time that I read the book, it was a very strong way of reinforcing things for me. I um, talk about the, 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 there's certain characteristics I think like come to mind. You know the concept of perfectionism and arrogance and so on. 
and maybe trying to compare yourself. Talk about those. You know, th- these are negative traits that yeah. You, go ahead. That you have to master. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I mean, I think if the, the the things that are just tremendous um, barriers towards learning is is you know the one the lack of confidence that you can learn. But um, beside that, that that too much comparison with others. And again, I think we often you know a novice will compare themselves to someone who's practiced a skill for a long time and think I'm not good at that. And, you know, all those comparisons are often dangerous. One of the things that strikes me as really amazing about us as humans is that we're each unique. We have an unusual combination of insights and skills and understanding and experiences that we can leverage for things that benefit ourselves most uniquely. So those comparisons with others are often counterproductive. They often haunt you. They, you often use those as a way of uh, self-critique and criticizing in a way that's often unfair. So I think comparison to others have to be curbed. They have to be really played down. The same way perfectionism, the idea that you can do something perfect, is a very serious fault for learning. One of the most valuable things that uh, humans can do is we can learn from our mistakes. Our mistakes, in that sense, should be celebrated as learning opportunities. Yeah, I blew that, but wow, did I ever learn a lot? You know, sometimes people get discouraged after you know a, a bunch of negative results of job interviews. But if you use those to leverage and say, I learned about myself, I learned about others, I learned about you know where I'm probably not a good fit, then the learning becomes significant and you don't expect to succeed immediately. So perfectionism is a great handicap towards being a lifelong learner. And the same way, so is arrogance. The arrogance that says, well, I don't need to know that, or I already know that, or I'm already good at that, without really having substantial data points. You know, to get the feedback of others, to get the feedback of people that you care about, to do objective analysis and figure out, well, actually, maybe I, I, I suffer from that situation. I need to work on that. You know, to work on a variety of things. So, you know, if you think you know something, it's very hard to teach you. You're already, uh, you know, very hard to learn something that you already think you learn, you know, or that you've learned. Um, I, you know, I teach graduate courses at U of T, and you do as well. And I, I wanted to ask you. I mean, I have never come across any graduate students who have that arrogance. And and I'm wondering, have you? And if you have or you haven't, why is this so? I, I think that the danger in the modern world is more of the imposter syndrome that most of us feel that there's just, we always can compare ourselves to people who are highly accomplished in an area. So I think this leaves the opposite problem of arrogance, which is really uh, yeah, a lack of confidence that you can do anything well, that you can master anything, that you could be at the forefront of an area. And so I think you know that, that imposter syndrome has replaced arrogance. The places where I occasionally still find arrogance is in areas where really the the comparison set is very small. Sometimes if people have tremendous success in an area when they're young, then they they think they can get away with things. Uh, Certain times you've got politicians or you've got sports people who think they can get away with with anything because they've had you know, terrific success or because they're a billionaire or because they're the best in the world. And those are really dangerous attitudes, right? We're, we're all 
of uh, you know trying to game the system and take advantage of others. Fascinating. Now let's talk about best practices, and one comes to mind is is patience, and I'm sure you have others, but talk about about the concept of patience as a as a good practice. I mean, some people give up at the first hurdle. I mean, that's probably well, the best the, way to put it. Yeah, great points. I, I think patience is one of those, you know, those emotional attributes or skills that just plays an enormous role in learning. One of the ways I've heard it said, which I think is a really profound way, is to say that most people overestimate what they can accomplish in one year and underestimate what they can accomplish in five years. And if you're learning a new skill set, whether it's you know playing the guitar or swimming proficiently or or, or you know, becoming a great cook or gardener or whatever skill set you're working on, it takes time to be really good. You know, one of the, uh, the, the standard rules is that 10,000 hour rule, that to become a really good chess player, uh, to become a really good tennis player, to become a really good um, you know, mathematician. I think that 10,000 hours is, is a pretty good benchmark for saying, if you haven't put in that much time, then you haven't really given it a fair shot. But that's it's a, a lot of time. That's a lot of commitment. What's well, about five years? Look, what's amazing about it? And the old British, well, not old, it's been brought back. The British engineering apprenticeship system was basically a four to five, basically five years, which was about 10,000 hours. Yeah. But 10, where did that come from, that concept of 10,000 hours, which is basically is around about five years, you know, 1,800 hours. The 2000 to be honest, I don't know the origin, but certainly Malcolm Gladwell in his book Outliers lays it out very effectively. And in a, in a more recent book, Stephen Pinker's remarkable book on rationality sort of challenges and said, well, 10,000 hours alone isn't enough. It really helps if you got some aptitude for what you're doing as well. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and the combination is really what leads to, you know, chess masters and, and truly proficient people in a variety of areas. Uh, but, you know, I think the 10,000 hours, like so many things, it's a nice round number. Uh, you know, certainly 100,000 hours is ridiculously big. 1,000 <laughs> hours is ridiculously small. So, yeah, 10,000 hours is, is the right order of magnitude. And that's just to be a basic master. Not that's not to become a full, you know, leading in it. It's you've just mastered a skill, but there's a lot more to do than just mastering the first level of the skill. Well, yeah, I, I think that typically gets you, you know, well into the intermediate or even towards the events. But you're right. You, I mean, lifelong learning says there's always more to learn. Yes. Yeah, one of the people I, I was, you know, I always thought was. You know, a remarkable person because he didn't have the, you know, the, the physical physique that necessarily thought about that. But I was a big Wayne Gretzky fan. Mm-hmm. You know, and one of the things Wayne Gretzky felt who had you know, set all kinds of records for scoring and assists and, and other NHL achievements, you know, he said that you've got to believe that every day you can be better than you were before. And you know, at a certain point, time catches up with you, but it's still a terrific attitude. I can do this and I can get better. Yeah, I'm Stephen Armstrong. You're listening to the Innovation Nation on Career Buzz here on CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto and worldwide online at CIUT.FM. Um, you talked about Wayne Gretzky. Uh, don't you think, and there's a, like my childhood, there was a famous football player, soccer player, George Best. And, you know, we've got Pele and 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 today we have Mark. We had Maradona, but all these great football players. Do you think there's a level of genius 
among these people that stand out from the from even the best of the best of the best? Do you think that's just something that they're born with? It's a it's an inherent gift. Well, I, like, I like, Wayne, actually, like Wayne Gretzky. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I actually, uh, one of the claims of fame is I, I, I happened to watch George Best when he had an inspired game when he was near the end of his career playing with the uh, North American Soccer League. And you know, yeah. he, I, he just decided to put on a show for a little while. He was well past his prime, but it was magical to watch him. Yeah, he just could faint and dribble his way through a team and, and score apparently effortlessly. Yeah, I do think there are exceptional abilities. You know, whether it's you know it's a Bach or a Beethoven or a, a Shakespeare or, or yeah. a physical talent. Yeah, there are truly outliers. You know, John von Neumann intellectually is is just in a different category from most of the rest of us. But, you know, a huge number of, again, again, you can't pretend that you can be those people. That's the comparison problem again. But you can be the best you can be. Uh, and, you know, I think, the, the, you know, that, that's the thing to strive for is that, you know, you, you create a life where, you know, well, that, that's that, that was my ultimate. I, I did my, my my best possible achievement, my best possible you know, an essay, lecture, um, garden arrangement, aquarium design, you know, whatever you take pride in, that you just did it and you know. You know, is another thing as well, you think about status in the hierarchy. As a young apprentice, I always remembered that no matter what level the person was, what money they made, I can remember helpers on the shop floor and janitors of toilets etc people who whistled and i'm not kidding whistled in their job because they loved it and they had the most wonderful happiness because they did the job even though it wasn't any advanced particular job in the aerospace industry they loved what they did and they were very happy and i remember observing this so how, what does that say about you know career happiness and it's it's I mean there it's not high intellectual calling, but there was a I always I always well observed those that were happy in what they did, even if it wasn't in a lofty position. Have you got comments on that? Well, yeah, I, I think to take satisfaction from you know those those achievements that you have. Again, I've I, I'm in the fortunate position, Stephen, of being a grandfather, and I get to watch my you know my kids, my grandkids grow up. And and seeing the accomplishments that they take pride, in. I did that. Yeah, I, 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 their immense satisfaction of being able to do something they couldn't do before. You know, we were uh, at a little playground with uh, with them, and you know, my my five year old granddaughter Ellie tried several times to uh, to sink a basket. Yeah, she had a smaller ball and there, there was a basket there. <laughs> she missed and she missed and she missed and she she got it. And the delight and pleasure when she achieved her goal, I think, is the kind of thing that you're re referring to. And I think you know, to set a milestone that you can celebrate. Uh, one of my good friends is a is a counselor, career counselor, and he says that what leads to burnout is so often not hard work and it's not effort. And it's not, uh, you know, the, the, the things we often associate with it, but it's stopping once in a while to celebrate an achievement, you know, to take time out and say, we did that. You know, we were a team. I think for teams, for, for groups to stand back once in a while on a you know, Friday afternoon and say, we had a good week. 
you know, we, we achieved something, we did something, let's, let's toast it. Uh, those things play an enormous role. I think what you're talking about with, you know, people can do apparently mundane jobs, but yep. do them well yep. and do them their satisfaction. Yep. They've learned that. Yeah, you no doubt about it. I observed that from a very young age. Um, and our, we've got about six minutes to go um, before we wrap up. I want to talk about curiosity and then creativity and problem solving. Let's talk about curiosity. Um, why why are some people curious and others don't care? Like, what's can you learn curiosity? But good, talk about curiosity. Well, the curiosity is that that you know that business that says, how, how, "Why did that happen? Where did that work?" It's asking a question that you seek to answer. And I think, to a large extent, curiosity is at the core of what we want in lifelong learning. You know, that desire to sort of say, "How does that work? I, I want to learn more about that." I want to figure out how that works. How, how do they do that? How do they achieve that? Uh, but I think what happens sometimes is in certain homes or in a certain educational contexts, one is punished for curiosity. You're supposed to toe the line. You're not supposed to challenge it. You know, in, in some military operations, you follow orders. You don't challenge orders. I think those are dangerous environments often. Sometimes you know, parents want kids to be compliant, not to see what happens when. And, and I think those things can oust that curiosity, which is natural within us uh, outside. But I think, you know, for those who have suffered from being penalized for curiosity, it's a matter of recultivating that interest, of taking some, something and saying, why does that happen? The, the story of Nobel Prize winning uh, Richard Feynman uh, says that you know he was getting really discouraged. He felt like he wasn't keeping up with his field. He wasn't able to do things. And he was walking through, he describes this in a surely or joking book, walks through a cafeteria and sees somebody throwing a, a plate like a Frisbee and it had a certain wobble to it. He said, why did that happen? Mm -hmm. And he went out and figured it out. And by the curiosity being rewarded with understanding, he fell in love with physics again. And you know, I think that you know, we get so pat and so safe in our environments that we don't ask the question, why did you say that? You know, what, what, what's going on there? Why do you think that? What's your basis for dismissing that? You know, to ask those questions of herself and others is a way to rediscover not only um, the thing you're studying, but, but the larger field that comes from being a, a human that's intelligent. That, that seeks to use intelligence as a strategy for bettering your own life and the life that those that you care for. Now, the skills of, of creative thinking and problem solving, these can be learned. I mean, people can actually take courses on creativity and, and problem solving. In our remaining few minutes, talk about those skills and maybe other skills that you actually, if, for those that are interested in lifelong learning, talk about the actual courses or, or skills that they can actually acquire by just choosing to learn them. Well, I, I mean, I think you've described the whole process of lifelong learning, but let me just make the distinction, which I think is so critical. Problem solving often involves a very narrow set of skills. Uh, that is, you know, the 18 times 2 is a trivial math problem. It's a problem that has a agreed on answer. We, we know that it's 36. Uh, we, we, we can use that, but it's got a single answer. And there are certain problem-solving skills, which we often associate with math and with some physical engineering or some science-type hard questions. We give the, the, nomin the, the term hard to those things, which I think is a bad value judgment. But creativity 
asks a different kinds of questions. It says, what can we do this? Where, where does this flow out? What are the possibilities here? And it's a different way of thinking. You know, if I can give an example, um, you know, I don't think most of us think about buying a house or a car or going on a vacation as, you know, I, I choose a vacation as a way of solving the problem of being tired. You, you choose a location, location from, from that location, you can do things that you enjoy. You can have fun with it. You buy a house because you can invite your family over. You can have Christmas there. You can open presents. You can celebrate birthdays. You can go for walks in the nearby parks. You can go to your work. Those are open-ended issues. You don't become a craftsman because you solve a problem. You become a craftsman because you take an interest in the wood that you're working, in the tools that you're working with, and the way they respond to being molded. Uh, I, I think our lives require us to engage creatively. What can we do? What, what are the possibilities? What unfolds from this thing? You know, all of us are these days carrying around cell phones. Uh, we call it a cell phone. We, we think of it as its origin, which was as a mobile form of telephone, of, of, of verbal communication. Few of us use it very much for that now. The cell phone was a platform for creative engagement. We use it now for taking notes, for shopping lists, for navigating places, for listening to music, for connecting through all sorts of social media, for sending pictures to loved ones. Yeah, texting, it's not a phone anymore. Texting, right? when you're in the supermarket, texting, if you have to get some food, you know, like tins of something, whatever, you send photographs. I mean, it's amazing how it's used. Yeah, and because it was, it created a range of creative possibilities. And I think our life is a stage on which we can perform or execute many different kinds of plays and dramas. And we get to choose that part. We get to engage in that creatively, not as a problem to solve, but as a, a creative experience and expression of who we are and what we've learned and what we found of value. Uh, Brian, with one minute, well, 30 seconds, you recently retired as the vice dean of cross-disciplinary programs at the U of T, Faculty of Applied Science and Engineering. What are your plans for the future for the next, let's say, the next few years? Well, I'd like to do more travel. The world is still a fascinating place. I've got some writing that I want to do. I want to celebrate more time as being a, a grandpa to uh, the remarkable uh, second generation of people that I have. But, you know, I, I think just to, uh, oh, I also want to become a master swimmer. I've, I've swam for a long time. I'd like to just push myself a bit more and see if I can compete successfully as, a, as an older person. So uh, well, I'm sure life will be very full. Just and what what is many lengths is that or many like what distance is that or is it speed for swimming? Just well, well you're, you're, swimming comes in a variety of things. So the, a typical longer distance is a fifteen hundred meters, which is thirty lengths of a of a long course pool, a fifty meter pool. Uh, a shorter race is a fifty meters. Then they come in freestyle or or backstroke or butterfly or. Uh, uh, individual medley, uh, backstroke. I think I mentioned that. The I, I love the different strokes. I love the feeling of water flowing over my body. I love going as fast as I can. I love getting faster. Wonderful. It's been brilliant. Okay, Brian, we're done. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a thank pleasure. you for having me, Stephen. It's been wonderful.
Take you're listening. You're listening to Innovation Nation on Career Buzz Cans, unique radio conversation that empowers lives and races careers and energizes organizations on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Stephen Armstrong. If you have any comments on today's show or with questions about the Innovation Nation, please email me at sarmstrong at amgimanagement.com. Thanks to my guest, Professor Brian Carney, on why lifelong learning is so important.